we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. This year, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell made his obligatory visit to Capitol Hill, where he spoke to senators and representatives about monetary policy. And of course, really, this amounts to just a a press conference for uh, Democrats and Republicans to either talk up the economy or talk down the economy, depending on who's got the White House. Trump is the president, so you have a lot of Democrats trying to talk about why the economy is actually weak and trying to get the Fed chairman to say something negative about the economy or negative about President Trump. And then, of course, you have the Republicans trying to get Powell to validate how great the economy is and how uh, you know, Trump's policies are helping the economy. And, you know, the biggest problem with all this is that the, the biggest promoters of how great the economy is uh, are the Republicans, right? These are supposedly the defenders of capitalism, uh, and they're saying everything is great, everything is booming. And you have the Democrats, particularly the Democratic Socialists, who are saying that there are a lot of problems, and the Republicans are saying that these problems don't exist. And unfortunately, when it hits the fan, when we end up in a recession, and I've been making this point over and over again, but capitalism is going to be thoroughly discredited because the people who advocated were oblivious to the problems. They said everything was fine. And now the socialists are going to appear to be the ones that had it right, even though they were right for the wrong reasons. I mean, they have no idea uh, why the economy is screwed up. 
and their plans to solve the problem will just screw it up even more. But the voters aren't going to know that. They're going to see, oh, these Republicans who talk about capitalism, they were wrong. They didn't realize what a mess it was. Here it's these Democratic socialists. They understood. They knew there was a problem. So, you know, let's vote for them because, you know, they must know the solution if they understood the problem. Well, they didn't understand the problem. That was the point. But at least they admitted there was a problem. The Republicans denied there were any problems at all. I mean, all they talked about was this booming economy, this unprecedented economy. And so when this thing, you know, goes into recession, they own that. There's no way to walk that back. And they're going to make it very easy for the socialists to come into power because they're going to be the ones that have the credibility, even though they don't deserve any of it. They're going to get it. And then we're going to adopt these policies. But, you know, one thing about the fact that Powell was uh, testifying was that we got a lot of talk on the financial uh, you know, television shows about the Fed, about the economy, about Powell, you know, centered around the testimony, which, of course, they run live and they show the Q&A, which is usually the more interesting than the prepared testimony. In fact, I was excited because I thought uh, – AOC, uh, the bartender, because she is on the House Financial Services Committee, which is chaired by Maxine Waters. She's on that committee. So I was hoping that she was going to be there to ask a question. Uh, I thought that would be very comical, but she w- she wasn't up there. I mean, I, you know, obviously the whole committee doesn't get to ask questions. I'm not really sure how they pick who asks questions. But my guess is they wanted to muzzle her. They probably didn't want to make her look even more foolish than she already is. In fact, yesterday when the Senate was uh, talking to Powell, the subject of MMT, modern monetary theory, did in fact come up. And I'm going to speak about that later in the podcast when I really get into some of the specific points uh, that were made uh, by Powell in response to to the Q&A. But right now, I just kind of want to talk a little bit, again, about the media coverage of this spectacle. And to me, when I sit back and I watch uh, all of these talking heads um, discussing the economy and uh, the Federal Reserve, to me, it kind of reminds me of, you know, looking at a bunch of five-year-olds having a conversation about Santa Claus and how it is that he manages to, you know, deliver all these these uh, presents in, in just one day. And, they, you know, they come up with ways that he does it. Of course, you know, it's, it's very uh, entertaining uh, to watch uh, that type of discussion. And it's all a bunch of nonsense, but it's very cute, you know, the way their minds work and the way they try to figure this out. And that's kind of, you know, while I'm watching uh, these uh, people discuss the economy and the Fed, I mean, that's what, to me, that's what I'm watching, except, you know, it's not that comical. It's it's kind of more sad and it's not cute at all because they're not five years old. I mean, these are adults who are really discussing topics that they know nothing about. And but, you know, other people don't know they don't know anything about it, just like the other five year olds in the room don't realize uh, the truth about Santa Claus. Uh, you know, none of the adults having these conversations know the truth about the economy, the U.S. economy, Fed policy, or anything like that. I mean, when you look at the Federal Reserve and the 180-degree switch in policy that was made between the last rate hike in December and the most recent uh, announcement that they made in January, right, you look at where the Fed was and where the Fed is now, and they're completely the opposite of where they were. And 
it doesn't even occur to anybody as to why this happened. Right? Because nothing has really changed with the exception of the stock market got cratered in December in response to what the Fed said. And so the reason that uh, Powell talks about patience, and probably that's the word he used the most during uh, his prepared and during the Q&A, he kept talking about how the Fed's going to be patient, how they can be patient. Well, why, why weren't they patient in December? Why did they raise rates in December? Why couldn't they have been patient then? And the only difference is the market hadn't completely collapsed. In fact, at the last meeting, the Fed was not only not patient, they were hiking rates, they were interested in hiking rates more, but they had the uh, quantitative tightening program, the shrinking of the balance sheet, that was on autopilot. Why did they take it off autopilot? And not only did they take it off autopilot, why are they saying that they're going to wind it down so that we finish the reduction this year? I mean, the balance sheet is still almost $4 trillion. They did reduce it from 4.5 to just under 4. Uh, but, you know, clearly it's going to be closer to 4 than 3 when they cut the thing off this year. So why did they switch it? Well, the only thing that changed is the, the stock market. They clearly came to the rescue of the stock market. Now, you can say, well, but the economy is showing evidence of weakness. Yeah, but it was showing evidence of weakness before they hiked in December. And they ignored that weak uh, economic data, and they hiked anyway. And in fact, when the Fed talks about uh, their posture and their patience, they never talk about the weakness in the U.S. economy. They talk about the weakness in the global economy. They don't, they don't talk about any problems in the U.S. economy, but they just say they can afford to be patient. And again, one of the reasons that they now claim that they can afford to be patient is that there's no inflation. But at the same time, they're talking about there being no inflation. They're saying that, well, we're also going to let inflation go above 2%. And again, Powell was careful in the Q&A to say that they were not increasing the target, right? That the inflation target is still 2%. It's just that now it's not 2% each year. It's so that we average 2%. Uh, over the long run, which allows the Fed to let inflation be two and a half or three or three and a half now to to write make up for all of those years that it was less than two percent, which I mentioned on my last podcast, there is absolutely no justification for doing that. I mean, again, there's no justification for a two percent target in the first place. There is no proof. Uh, that 2% is some magical number when it comes to inflation. Again, the only uh, way they are able to justify 2% is because, you know, 1% is too close to zero, and zero means you're almost at falling prices, which is, you know, oh, no, we can never have that, right? The, the Federal Reserve says we can't let uh, the cost of living go down. That would be a disaster. So, you know, we need to have a buffer between zero and, and the inflation rate. And that's why we want 2% because we want to make sure that we don't get close enough to zero that we have to really worry about it. But if you go through a five or 10 year period and you never had the dreaded reduction in the cost of living, if inflation never got below zero the way the government measured it, well, then you dodge that bullet. I mean, there's no reason to say, oh, gee, we have to go back and now have 3 or 4% inflation because for all those years we had 1% instead of 2%. 1% is better than 2% if it stays at 1%, according to the Fed, right? But now they, now they want to go back and say, no, we, we want higher inflation this is not because they were worried about deflation in the past. And if you already got inflation above 2%, then you don't have deflation at all. And, and, and in fact, 
somebody on the uh, the Q and A, and I guess I'll take this uh, out of sequence. But somebody, when they were talking to the Fed, actually said, "Don't you see the failure to achieve your inflation target, right? Or the fact that you didn't achieve your inflation target of two percent is that a failure of your policy?" And and Powell kind of said, "Yes, I guess we failed. We weren't able to get two percent." Look, their mandate is not rising prices. Their mandate is not 2% per year inflation. Their mandate is price stability. That's their mandate. And if inflation was lower, then they were closer to achieving their mandate than when inflation is higher. I mean, price stability is prices being stable, not prices going up 2% a year. So the idea that they failed and now we have to make up for it by causing prices to rise even faster makes no sense at all unless you actually understand what the Fed's agenda is. Because that's why I said this was going to happen from the very beginning. I always said once we hit that 2% target, the Fed is going to move the goalpost. The Fed is never going to say inflation is too high. We need to rein it back in because it's impossible to do that. So whenever we get higher, well, then the Fed is just going to have to move the goalpost. And the way they moved it initially, they didn't change the 2% target. They simply said that now we're seeking for an average of 2%, which allows it to be higher without raising any, any eyebrows. But of course, at some point, once the average is much higher than 2%, well, then they're going to have to change it again. Because the one thing they can't do is fight inflation. But the one thing they can't do even more than that is admit that they can't fight inflation so that because then game's over. So the question is, when is the market going to call the Fed's bluff? Because that's all it is when it comes to fighting inflation is a bluff. Because, you know, if you let inflation get to 4% because you, you're trying to make up for 1% and so you're allowing it to go to 3% and now inflation is 4%. Well, how do you fight 4% inflation? Well, you got to maybe take the Fed funds rate up to 5% or 6% or 7%. You know, that's impossible. I mean, look at what happened at two and a quarter. The markets imploded. The Fed had to stop normalizing rates at two and a quarter. How are they going to jack them up to five or six or seven, especially if the inflation really starts running hotter during a recession? If we get stagflation, which is exactly where I think the U.S. economy is headed. But the point is, the Fed making this shift, this is not something that came out of left field. This was something that was going to happen from the beginning. Just like the Fed's backing away from uh, normalizing rates. This is not some new information that just happened. And now all of a sudden, a Fed that was going to bring interest rates back up to normal because something happened, they had to stop. I was saying from the beginning that they were going to stop. I just didn't know what the excuse was going to be, but eventually they would come up with one because I knew that they could not complete the journey. But they were able to fake it as long as the markets were giving them the thumbs up. But the minutes the market gave them the thumbs down, well, then they had to call it off. The same thing with the balance sheet. You know, when they said this autopilot, I mean, the markets were tanking on a balance sheet reduction plan going on autopilot. And so they had to call it off, right, because the markets were no longer cooperating. The question is, what took the market so long to wake up and realize the ramifications 
of the Fed raising interest rates and the Fed shrinking its balance sheet. I mean, look, look at the news that came out from Toll Brothers today, right? I mean, their new orders are imploding as buyers in California are completely gone from the housing market. I mean, even though mortgage interest rates have come down a little bit now that the Fed is no longer hiking rates or shrinking the balance sheet as much as it was, we have seen mortgage rates come back down. You know, they had gone back up to 5% or so, and now they're back down maybe 4.5. But 4.5 is still above the 3.5 that we were at for many years. And of course, the adjustable rate mortgages are nowhere near as cheap as they used to be. So the, you know, the housing bubble is pop. I mean, you can see that. I mean, the fact that markets were not worried about that sooner uh, is what's amazing, but eventually they figured it out and then the Fed came to the rescue. But when you listen to all these financial pundits, they, they, to them, you know, none of this was already going to happen. This is all, oh, okay, the Fed is just responding to some new stuff that, that is happening. They still don't get it, right? Just like I, I said before, when, it, when I look back at the, the 2008 financial crisis and all of the red flags that came up in 2007, that everybody ignored because they didn't see them as as red flags because they they didn't know what to look for. They didn't even know there was a problem, so they didn't even know to be be on the lookout for any kind of danger signs. Well, the same thing is happening now. All the things that the Federal Reserve is doing, these are not things that are surprising to me. These are things that I've been expecting to happen for a long time, and now that they're happening, to me, it's just a flashing light Yes, you know, we're, we're closer to the day of reckoning. Some of the economic numbers that came out this week that should certainly, you know, give the bulls a little bit of a pause for concerns. First of all, look at the December wholesale in inventories. I mean, these things have just soared. I mean, this is uh, sales have now dropped for the third month in a row. And because sales are falling, inventories are piling up. Now, you know, this big increase in inventory, I guess, is going to be one of the things that helps uh, Q4 GDP. We're going to get those numbers soon. Uh, and um, and so that could boost up the uh, GDP, which is still going to be quite a bit lower than everybody had been hoping for earlier in the year. And I still think that the GDP for the entire year is not going to be the 3% that the Republicans are still bragging that they achieved. Uh, that goal is going to elude them the same way it eluded uh, Obama. But what this means is that Q1 GDP or Q2 GDP could be a lot lower because you have all this inventory that isn't selling. Uh, businesses have overestimated consumer demand. And as a result, they have these bloated inventories. Look, I talked about how bad off the consumer is. I mean, you have record student loans that are weighing down a lot of young consumers. You have uh, auto delinquencies at a 10-year high, uh, so people are having trouble just making their car loan payments, how are they going to free up money to buy new stuff? I mean, people overestimated the ability of overly indebted, uh, underemployed Americans to keep on buying stuff they couldn't afford on credit. Uh, so this is some bad news that is being ignored. Also, on Monday, we got the Chicago Fed National Activity uh, Index. That number was a real disaster. They were looking for a plus 0.13 following the prior month's plus 0.27. And what we ended up getting is, first of all, they revised down the prior gain of up 0.27 to up 0.05. 
Uh, and then instead of getting a 0.13 gain, we drop 0.43. So much worse than expected, a big drop instead of a gain. And then we dropped from a much lower level than what people originally expected a rise from. So very bad numbers. Probably one of the worst numbers for the week is the housing starts numbers that came out yesterday. That was a real disaster. Again, I don't know how the market continues to be surprised by uh, weak housing numbers. I mean, after all, I mean, what would they expect? Uh, housing numbers, this was the biggest drop, uh, or we dropped to the lowest level in more than two years now on starts. And in fact, year over year, it was a 10.9% decline in starts. That's the biggest year over year decline since March of 2011. So basically eight years. It's the biggest year over year drop in eight years. And we're just getting started. I mean, this, there's a long way to go down in the housing market. And this is going to be a big part of the next recession. And again, looking at the rate of delinquencies in auto loans, that just tells you what's going to happen with, 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 with mortgage loans. I mean, people are obviously struggling to make their mortgage payments now, even though they have jobs, even though supposedly there's really low unemployment. Well, what's going to happen uh, to the ability of people to make these payments when they lose their jobs? I mean, if they can't even make them when they have jobs, imagine how much difficult it's going to be to make that payments when they're unemployed. But, you know, we got another really bad number that came out today on the trade deficit. This is the merchandise trade deficit, the goods trade deficit, which, you know, it's it's the much bigger number because we also report the unified deficit, which includes our uh, surplus that we have in services. But once upon a time, the merchandise trade deficit was the big number. I mean, it was it was actually bigger, I think, than the jobs number is now. I mean, I remember in the late 1980s, early 1990s. I mean, I didn't even care about the jobs numbers. I mean, nobody anticipated that. But the trade deficit, the merchandise trade deficit, that was the biggest uh, market moving number of the month. It was the most highly anticipated number of the month. People cared about the trade deficits. In fact, one of the reasons that we had the stock market crash in 1987 was because of the rising trade deficit. And the merchandise trade deficit peaked out at like $17 billion in 1987. And that was such a scary number that it was one of the reasons that we had that stock market crash. And then, of course, the number came down. Uh, I don't know if it you know, got down below $10 billion, but I remember it you know, coming down considerably uh, from the $17 billion before it started to go up again. But anyway, the consensus for the December deficit was 73.7 billion which would have been a pretty big increase from the 70.5 billion that we had in November right so they were looking for an increase in the trade deficit well we got an increase just a much bigger increase than had been expected we went up to 79.5 billion on the trade deficit that is an all-time record high uh, trade deficit in in goods and in fact, if you X out oil, which we still have a deficit in, I mean, it's even worse. But even if you include oil, we are bigger. The only time the deficit was close to this big was in the summer of 2008, just before the financial crisis. And so at that time, that huge trade deficit uh, reflected the imbalances that were brought about by cheap money. 
Americans were consuming too much. We were buying too much with borrowed money. And that manifests itself in this huge trade deficit. And ultimately, when the debt bubble popped and we had the financial crisis, the trade deficit went way back down. But the fact that it got that big was basically a byproduct of that credit bubble. Well, now we have an even bigger credit bubble and we have the same byproduct. In fact, if you look at the chart, I think this number is going to get much bigger. I mean, I think we're actually going to hit $100 billion in a trade deficit maybe before the whole thing implodes, uh, you know, maybe sometime this year or next year. But if you look at that chart, we are just blowing through the old lows and this deficit is going much higher. In fact, the increase in the deficit was achieved by a 2.8% drop in exports and a 2.4% jump in imports, right? Donald Trump, right, made shrinking the trade deficit a, a, a key part of his campaign. In fact, the whole trade war all of the tariffs, right, the renegotiation of NAFTA, it was all about reducing the trade deficit. Yet here we are with the biggest trade deficits in U.S. history. And nobody cares, including uh, Fed Chairman Powell, who was asked about the trade deficit today in his, in his Q&A. And he basically said that he doesn't care about it. I mean, he did talk about the budget deficit. He did say that the budget deficit is a problem. He said it's a long-term problem. It's unsustainable, but it's not a problem now, right? It's not a problem in the short run. Well, if it's a problem in the long run, it is a problem in the short run because eventually the short run becomes the long run. The long run becomes the here and now. I mean, you don't know when that's going to be, right? 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people were saying the same thing. The deficit is a problem in the long run. Well, have we arrived at the long run? I mean, we could be weeks away, months away, years away. It's I don't think it's decades away, but to say that it's not a problem now because we haven't had a crisis yet. I mean, why wait for a crisis? I mean, the problem is if you wait for the long run to be the here and now, if you rate for the national debt to create a crisis, well, then it's too late to avert the crisis. But now that means that it's much worse than had you done something about it before it became a crisis. See, that's really what Powell means. It's a problem now. It's just not a crisis now. It's a problem. It will be a crisis if we don't do anything about the problem. But because we're saying it's only a long-term problem and ignoring the fact that it's a short-term problem too because it's going to bring about a crisis if we don't do anything about it, it is going to be a crisis. But the point is that when he was specifically asked about the trade deficit, he said, well, you know, I'm not, you know that's, that is an unsustainable. He said, I'm worried about the budget deficit. I'm basically not worried about the trade deficit as if because the trade deficit, uh, you know, is, isn't, isn't a problem. It is a huge problem. That is the point. I mean, why was everybody so worried about the trade deficit back in the 1980s? I mean, were they a bunch of economic idiots back then to be worried about something that they shouldn't have worried about? No. I mean, the trade deficit was a big problem back then. It's an even bigger problem now. See, the difference is back then the trade deficit, while big, was still small enough that we could have done something about it. So it was a problem that we could have solved. Now it's a problem that we can't solve without massive pain. That's the difference. So now we completely ignore it. So now it is a non-event. I mean, if we had gotten a trade deficit this big back in 1987, and I'm not talking about $80 billion big, 
I'm just talking about missing expectations by as wide a margin, right? The trade deficit came out much bigger than the markets had anticipated, right? What the markets had priced in, if they priced in anything at all. I mean, today the markets don't even care. But back then, back in the late 80s, early 90s, if we had a number that was this much worse than what people thought, I mean, the dollar would have tanked. I mean, you would have seen a huge decline in the dollar. I mean, the dollar index would have dropped one, maybe two full percentage points. I mean, the yen in particular would have skyrocketed, the Swiss franc. I mean, dollar would have been cream. Today, the dollar was actually up a little bit. In fact, you can't even tell if you look at the five-minute chart of the currencies trading and you just looked at the chart, you wouldn't even know when the trade deficit was released. Right. Nobody cares about a number that used to be the most important number. Again, not because it's not a problem. It's an even bigger problem now than it was then. It's just that we've uh, we've ignored the problem for so long that now it's not a problem. And of course, it's it would be so painful to try to fix it that nobody even discusses it. So it's just going to continue until it's a crisis. See, that's what Powell, again, doesn't recognize these trade deficits are a problem because they are unsustainable. We can't keep borrowing money indefinitely to consume. We can't keep flooding the world with IOUs and never have to redeem them with real goods. A day of reckoning is coming. Just because it hasn't come yet doesn't mean it's not going to come. And of course, we are dealing with the problem right, of the trade deficits, of the budget deficits, just because they haven't erupted in a currency and sovereign debt crisis yet doesn't mean that we're not paying the price. I mean, economic growth is very slow today because of the accumulated trade deficits and budget deficits. This huge gap of inequality that has widened so dramatically between the very rich and the middle class and the poor has been exacerbated by the same policies that have brought about these big imbalances, the trade deficits and the budget deficits, the hollowing out of our economy, the fact that Americans no longer have uh, uh, savings, the fact that we're loaded up with debt, This is all a function of big trade deficits uh, and big budget deficits. So we have seen this in a diminished standard of living. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump was able to get elected, the fact that uh, certain people voted for Trump who under normal circumstances never would have done that, it reflected their frustration over their personal uh, falling standard of living, which is a result of these trade deficits and these budget deficits that have been brought about by bad monetary and bad fiscal policy. Just because it hasn't completely imploded in in an economic crisis, it doesn't mean that it hasn't been a problem. But so many people now are willing to accept that trade deficits aren't a problem, budget deficits aren't a problem. Look at Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett was given this interview uh, this week on CNBC. And he came out and he said that, you know, people who are out there fear-mongering about the debt and the national debt and the budget deficits, he said that they're wrong. And he says that, you know, he admitted that once upon a time, he used to be one of those fear mongers. He was worried about the deficits. He was warning about it. I remember uh, when Warren Buffett uh, wrote an article called uh, Squanderville, right? He called the United States Squanderville and he called the dollar squander bucks. So he was very much in the, the camp that deficits are a big problem and that they matter. But now all of a sudden he's saying they don't matter. And the reason he gave is because he said, look how much the debt has grown. Look how much the national debt has grown over the last 20 or 30 years as people have been warning about it. And and nothing's happened. 
And meanwhile, if you just bought the stock market and, and didn't care about the deficit, look at how much money you made. Whereas if you were worried about the deficit and so you bought gold instead of stocks, you're worse off. Therefore, we shouldn't worry about the deficit, which makes no sense at all. You know, just because it hasn't erupted in a crisis yet doesn't mean it won't. And it doesn't mean that the people who were worried about it, including him at one time, were wrong. It's the people who are oblivious who are wrong. It's just that the people who are oblivious and who aren't worried outnumber the people who were. So for a while, they can keep on partying until there's a crisis. But believe me, when there's a crisis, a lot of these paper gains in the stock market are going to unravel. And then you're going to go back and say, you know what? The people who bought gold actually have more money than the people who bought stocks because you know what? They were right. It was a problem. It just took a longer time for it to become a crisis. But once it becomes a crisis, it's too late to do anything about it. I mean, that is the huge difference, at least if you recognize the problem early enough and you deal with it in the short run, you prevent the crisis from happening in the long run. But if you ignore the problem in the short run because you say it's just a long-term problem, when the problem erupts, it is a crisis and it's far more painful, far, far more destructive than if you'd have done something about it sooner. But of course, now the problems are so big, nobody has the guts to do anything about it. The pain that would be required to try to avert a crisis, if it's even possible at this point to avert one, nobody wants any part of that. So all we do is kick the can down the road and pretend that there's nothing to worry about. And, and, and then when it happens... Again, right now, it's all going to be blamed on capitalism. And socialism is going to be seen as the panacea to solve the problem when in actuality, it's going to be what makes the problems much, much worse, right? It's going to, it's going to turn the recession into a depression and it potentially could turn the inflation into hyperinflation. In fact, if you want to get a good picture of the way the political discussion is going to evolve over the years, I was watching this video of Diane Feinstein where she was surrounded by a bunch of kids, um, you know, some of them pretty young, maybe like the five-year-olds that I discussed earlier talking about Santa Claus. And they were saying things that made as much sense as that. Uh, to uh, Diane Feinstein about the Green New Deal, and they were basically, you know, giving her an earful about how she is opposed to that, and how she's, you know, making a huge mistake, and how they're going to have to reap the consequences. They're going to have to live in this wasteland of a planet, you know, if we don't fix this in ten or twelve years. And so she's got to pass the Green New Deal, or else, right? And of course, you know, she really doesn't know how to respond to these these kids. I mean, you know. Um, I mean, they're, 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 what they're saying, you know, is a bunch of nonsense. But of course, everything that the, that the Democrats believe and say is also a bunch of nonsense. But they have just taken it to uh, another level. Uh, but I mean, this is what's going to happen. I mean, you're going to see a growing swell of people on the left, you know, confronting the Democrats who aren't towing the line, who aren't jumping on board the socialist bandwagon. And the worse the economy gets, and it's going to get very bad with the Republicans at the helm of the ship claiming everything is great as it's as it's going down and sinking, uh, this is where that party is going to go. And, and this is where uh, our nation is going to go. And so you, you got to read that writing on the wall and you got to make these adjustments. You got to make these adjustments to your portfolio and you got to do it now. I mean, you got to say, hey, you know, enough of the stuff that Peter has been saying over the years is finally really starting to happen. And you know what? He's probably got this thing right. If this much of his forecast has already come true, what's the odds that the rest of it doesn't follow suit? 
right? Because to me, if I got this much of it right, the odds are that the rest of it is wrong, I think, are slim. I think the other people who weren't able to see any of these things coming, who have been kind of blindsided by some of the recent events because it didn't really fit their narrative, they're the ones that are wrong. What's been happening recently fits my narrative perfectly, which is why I think my narrative is more likely to be correct. But I want to get into some of the other uh, topics that were discussed uh, by uh, Powell in response to uh, some of the questions he got. Yesterday, he actually got a question uh, specifically related to MMT, which I talked about uh, on my podcast a couple of episodes ago when I talked about the marriage between MMT and the Green New Deal and uh, how that was a marriage made in hell. And uh, so when the subject came up, I mean, here um, Powell gave the correct answer. I mean, he basically said it's a bunch of nonsense, that it's not true, that just because a government borrows in its own currency, in a currency that it creates, that there's no limit to how much it can borrow and that you don't have to worry about the debt and you can keep on borrowing because you never have to default. I mean, he pointed out that anyone who believes in that is nuts, you know, and they are. And of course, that is gaining a lot of traction now uh, by the, you know, uh, Green New Deal crowd because it's how they want to finance the Green New Deal. Because even if they jack taxes up, you know, like crazy on the rich, there's simply not enough money there. They don't want to raise taxes on the middle class because that's not going to win them any votes, which was done, you know, as I pointed out, which was done to finance the uh, the the original New Deal in World War II. The middle class and the working poor paid for that. You know, maybe they didn't anticipate that they were going to pay for it, but they paid for it. Uh, but no politician is going to advocate that now. So they all want to just get something for nothing. And that's what the... Uh, MMT promises, but what you end up getting is inflation, which of course hurts the middle class and the poor the most. And inflation is a tax. I mean, paying for government by printing money is nothing new, right? This whole idea that modern monetary theory is like this new theory. This isn't new. I mean, governments have done this before. It's never worked. I mean, it's called, you know, uh, uh, you know, monetization of debt or the inflation tax. I mean, Austrian economists, I mean, I've been talking about this for years. There's three ways that the government can pay for spending. The first and most honest way is taxation. But of course, that's the least popular way unless you're just taxing the rich. The second way is by borrowing money legitimately where the government sells a bond and then somebody buys it in the private sector, right? The government can borrow money. Now, that's not as good as taxes because the lender requires interest. So now you have to pay for the government spending plus the interest on the money you borrowed to pay for government spending. So just like buying something on a credit card ends up costing you more money than if you pay cash, if you pay for government with debt, it costs you more than if you pay for government with taxes. So the best way to pay for government is through taxation. But for politicians trying to promise a free lunch, they don't want to raise taxes to pay for government, so they borrow money. But that simply requires even larger future tax hikes uh, than what would have been required if they just raised taxes now. But again, the politician, he doesn't care about tax hikes in the future because he may not be in office. He cares about the taxes now. And so let's keep taxes low today by borrowing the money, and then we just make taxes high in the future. But that's someone else's problem because I'm already retired and collecting my pension, right? Well, the third way to pay for government is through inflation. The government just prints the money. 
or the central bank buys the bonds. The government sells the bonds, not to a private party, but to its own central bank that creates the money out of thin air. I mean, so that, that, that's been there. It's not like this is some new idea. Hey, we could pay for stuff by printing money. That's always been an option. It's just the worst of the, of the possible options. And again, what generally happens is when you go from option one to option two, when you start relying on debt, sometimes debt is so big that now you have no choice but to go to option three, which is to pay for government through inflation. But it's amazing to me that so many uh, Democrats, you know, are in favor of inflation and they think somehow fighting inflation is what helps the rich. No, it doesn't. I mean, the rich in many cases will benefit from inflation because the rich have a lot of debt that they have used to accumulate real assets. And so inflation wipes out debt. It transfers wealth from creditors to debtors. And really rich people tend to be debtors, right? They borrowed a lot of money, not to buy stuff like Middle-class people borrow money to buy things. Rich people don't borrow money to buy things. I mean, they buy the things that they need with, with cash. They borrow money to invest in things, to accumulate things. They borrow money to buy real property, uh, investment property, not just the house they live in, but rental property, commercial property. They borrow money to buy up uh, resources. They borrow money to buy businesses right, to buy real assets. And then when inflation comes and wipes out their debt, the rich get richer. It's the poor people who end up owning that debt, right? Their pension plan owns it. Uh, their insurance policy owns it, right? They own uh, the bonds. They lose. And the poor people have savings where they, you know, they bought government bonds or they have CDs or cash value in their insurance policy. They get that savings wiped out through inflation. And then the cost of living goes up, right? Inflation makes it more expensive to eat. Rich people don't care if it gets more expensive to eat. They got plenty of money for food, right? They, they don't care about that. It's the middle class. It's the poor who are the most affected by a rising cost of living. So inflation tax falls heaviest on the poor, the middle class, not on the rich. And it is a tax because the government is taking your purchasing power, right? They have two things they can take from you. They can take your money honestly through taxes, or they can take your purchasing power dishonestly through inflation. And that's all MMT is. That's all modern monetary theory is, is let's rob people through inflation because if we do that, they won't realize they're getting robbed, and we can always blame the inflation on the op on on OPEC, you know, on Arabs, or you know, on maybe labor unions. Although the the, the left doesn't want to blame the rate labor unions for inflation, but they can blame greedy capitalists jacking up prices, or speculators, or find somebody to vilify. But of course, they won't accept responsibility for themselves. So that that came up yesterday, and you know, and 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 maybe even that was a reason they kept AOC off of the committee today because they saw how quickly he dismissed that. And maybe they realized that it really would have been embarrassing to have her uh, ask any kind of question, uh, you know, on that panel. So I guess they gave her something else to do. So she missed, uh, she missed the hearing. Another person had asked about the Fed independence, right? This was a Democrat, right? Talking about, you know, why is it important that the Fed be independent and not, uh, you know, be pressured politically. And of course, they're trying to imply that that Trump put some political pressure on the Fed. And that's why the Fed changed its policy. And in fact, that was the only real question that I remember listening to that even kind of remotely hit on 
you know, why the Fed did this 180. I mean, you, you know, you would think there'd be all these questions. Hey, what are you looking at? What's wrong with the economy? You know, why did you, you know, turn on a dime? And, you know, why are you not shrinking the balance sheet? And, and what does that say? Does that mean we really monetize the debt? I mean, there really wasn't any real probative questions about that. I mean, just this kind of one question that was more kind of a slap at, at Trump. It was trying to get at Trump than anything else uh, about, you know, why is it important for the Fed to be independent? Of course, Powell then says, you know, why it's important. But of course, the Fed is not doing any of that, right? The whole idea, and and Powell articulated this, is that you want the Federal Reserve to be able to make decisions independent of their short-term political consequences. But they never do that. Proof is they just backed away from rate hikes because it was going to hurt the stock market, which would have been a political problem for Trump and the incumbent Republicans. And so that's why the Fed backed off. I mean, the Fed is supposed to, if it needs to, bring about a recession if that's in the long-term best interest of the economy. If there is a stock market bubble, then the Fed is able to prick it. Pricking a bubble now is better than letting it pop later when it's even bigger. So, But if the Fed doesn't want to prick a bubble because of the short-term consequences, well, that's precisely why it's supposed to be independent. So it doesn't care about the short-term consequences, that it cares about the long-term health of the economy. But none of the decisions the Fed ever makes are about the long-term health of the economy. In fact, um, Powell basically admitted that when he says that the national debt is unsustainable, that the amount of borrowing is unsustainable, and it's only a long-term problem, he should be doing something to diffuse that problem now. One of the reasons that Congress has done nothing to address the problem of a rising debt is that the Fed has made it easier. The Fed has been monetizing the debt. The Fed has kept interest rates artificially low. It's these artificially low interest rates that have enabled us to kick the can down the road. They've enabled us to accumulate a lot more debt. But the problem is the Fed is not going to be able to keep rates artificially low forever. At some point, they're just going to spike up. The Fed's not going to be able to control it. We're going to have a big spike in interest rates, and then it's too late because then we have a crisis. So if uh, if Powell is really independent and he sees a ticking time bomb, a long-term crisis based on an unsustainable trajectory of debt, he should be raising interest rates now, right, uh, much more so that he forces politicians to actually do the right thing. Because, see, the politicians have all the political pressure. They're never going to do the right thing. They're not going to act to avert a crisis because that will create a real crisis. They might not get reelected. So it's the politicians that have to face the voters that won't do the right thing. Since Powell doesn't have to face the voters, and since he's independent, then in theory he's supposed to be able to do the right thing, but he won't because the Fed is a lot more political than anybody wants to admit. Then, of course, we did get a question that we always get about uh, discrimination in the economy. I mean, somebody, I forget which uh, a Congress, a man or woman, actually, I don't even remember the sex. It was an African-American. I think it was a, it was, it was a man that asked the question uh, and about how invidious, I think, was the, the word that he used to describe the discrimination, this invidious discrimination that's going on in the economy against, and then he mentioned all the groups, not just African-Americans, but he mentioned the discrimination against 
against uh, women, against homosexuals, against transgendered people. I mean, again, every little group that you could think of, he said there's this invidious discrimination. And he wanted to know if there's any studies that the Federal Reserve had done to measure just how much damage we're getting in the economy as a result of all this discrimination. And of course, you know, Powell said, well, look, I got to get back to you on that. I'll be happy. I got, you know, I mean, he, he, I mean, he, he, he should have just, you know, said, of course not, because this discrimination does not exist and it's got nothing to do with the Fed. I mean, to the extent that there's discrimination going on in the economy, the Fed can't do anything about that. You know, and what's the even point of discussing that uh, when you're discussing monetary policy? But the irony of it is, Yes, there is discrimination that goes on in the United States. There's no question about that, that there's discrimination. Whenever you have freedom, you're going to have discrimination. If people are free, well, then they're free to discriminate. People are able to make their choices. Now, as far as the type of discrimination that he was talking about in the employment sector against uh, African-Americans or women or, or gays, that type of discrimination really doesn't exist to a large degree, with the exception of discrimination that is a direct consequence of the government and their anti-discrimination laws. Because in the employment sector, entrepreneurs are concerned about making a profit. That's their main concern. And so to the extent that they discriminate, it's they discriminate against people who are less qualified and who are less likely to help them make a profit. If there's somebody who is going to help them make a profit, then they want to hire that individual. And it doesn't matter uh, that individual's race or sex unless race or sex somehow is an element that would help them make a profit. Like, I guess if you're running a Hooters restaurant franchise and you're looking to hire uh, waitresses, well, you're going to want to hire women, number one, not men, and they're probably going to have to have Hooters, right? Uh, uh, That's part of the whole experience that you're selling Uh, You know, you're not going to have a bunch of flat chested women at a Hooters restaurant and you're not going to have a bunch of male restaurateurs. I mean, if you are going to stick with that. So obviously there's going to be some uh, jobs where discriminating based on gender or based on, you know, physical appearance is going to be an element of the job. But in many cases, those factors are not relevant. Right. I mean, if you if you're working in a back office job, what you look like doesn't matter. Your gender doesn't matter. Your sexual orientation doesn't matter. It's your aptitude for the job. I mean, how well can you perform the task that I'm hiring you to perform? How efficiently can you do it? You know, how much better are you than other applicants? And, you know, what is the cost to employ you? Right. That's what people are are thinking about employers. I mean, and if employer is, uh, you know, a racist or a homophobe, I mean, all of that is going to be secondary to hiring the best person. And of course, if the racist person, if the homophobic person passes up better qualified homosexuals or blacks or Hispanics because he's a bigot and he hires less qualified people instead, he's not going to have a successful business because his competitors are going to snap up those people that he passed up and they're going to get the benefit of that labor and they're going to you know, eat his lunch when it comes to competition. And so they're not That guy's not going to thrive. So normally in a free market, people who are hiring based on factors other than, uh, you know, those that are relevant to the job, people that are using irrational uh, criteria based on their own prejudices, they're not going to succeed. They're not going to grow. They're not going to expand. And they're going to be replaced by more open-minded people who are making hiring decisions based on aptitude and merit. 
and not, you know, based on these other criteria. Except, and I've mentioned this many times in the past, except where the government is involved, right? Except where the government comes in and imposes harsh penalties on employers who discriminate when you empower certain victims with the ability to sue their employer uh, based on their race or based on their gender or based on their sexual orientation, then all of a sudden, employers, particularly small employers who would never discriminate, all of a sudden have a financial incentive to do so because they want to minimize litigation. They want to minimize the cost of lawyers and having to constantly pay lawyers and having to worry about what's going on in the workplace that might sue them. And there, they that actually might give them a competitive advantage over other employers who are not discriminating and who are hiring and then are getting bogged down with lawsuits and legal bills that is otherwise distracting them from running their companies and it is taking away resources that could be better used uh, to grow their businesses. So the irony of this congressman asking the chairman of the Federal Reserve, you know, if he's studying the effects of discrimination and how it weakens the economy, the only reason that we may have discrimination weakening the economy is because of the very laws that this guy is in favor of, that this guy helps write and votes in, to be passed. The laws against discrimination are the ones that are causing discrimination, which again is exactly what happens with government. I mean, they always achieve the opposite. Whatever the government sets to accomplish through legislation, whatever their objective is, what is achieved is the opposite of that objective. So if the government has the objective of reducing discrimination, and in order to do that, they write a law, an anti-discrimination law, the effect of that law is always going to be incre to increase the amount of discrimination in the workforce. Now, when it comes to um, frivolous lawsuits, I want to end this podcast by talking about probably one of the most frivolous ones I've just seen. And this is a new one that was uh, recently filed against President Trump by a former staffer. And I forget the staffer's name. Uh, she is an African-American woman. And she has filed a, I guess, sexual harassment, sexual assault a lawsuit against President Trump. Uh, she hasn't specified a, a particular amount of damages, but I read through the complaint and the whole thing is laughable. I mean, it's all online. You can read it. And, you know, I mean, if I was a lawyer, I'd be embarrassed to write something like this. And again, I, I mean, I think the lawyer should be fined uh, for, you know, even filing this type of a claim. I mean, only in America could you do something so ridiculous. But anyway, here is what the woman is alleging, right? She's alleging that, um, I forget when it was exactly, but I think they were on one of the campaign RVs and they, you know, were at an event and she was, uh, I guess, a high up person in his staff in one particular state. I don't, you know, I don't recall all the details because I don't have the article in front of me, but she was, she was on a state level. She was helping to organize and she was, you know, she played a, 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 a they claim in any way that she played a key role in in helping the, the president in that particular state. So anyway, they're there, they're at a campaign event and they're together in this RV and she's talking to the president and she's telling the president how hard she's been working recently. She's really been you know, doing a good job and working hard and really giving it her all to help uh, elect the president. And then according to her, the president attempted to kiss her. Now, I mean, maybe he did, 
right? And maybe he felt, oh my God, she's doing all this. Let me show my appreciation. Let me show how thankful I am, but let me give you a kiss, right? Oh, that's what somebody would normally do if you're a man and a woman is, you know, you know, telling you how hard she's working and how, and you want to thank her, right? I mean, you could give her a kiss. I mean, that's more of a tradition. It's a custom, right? And, and so she claims that he was going to kiss her, but she's sure that he was going to kiss her on the mouth. Now, I'm not sure how she knew that he was aiming for her mouth, but apparently she believed that the president was going to kiss her on the mouth. Now, I don't know if she thought he was going to try to French kiss her or something like that. I don't know. But she became concerned that he was going to kiss her on the mouth. So she turned her head to make sure that the president didn't kiss her on the mouth. And so he kissed her on the cheek, pecked her on the cheek. But apparently the cheek kiss caught the corner of her mouth, right? So he kissed her on the cheek, but a little bit of his lips made some contact with the corner of her mouth. And that is it. That is the extent of the assault. Now, of course, I mean, apparently she didn't complain about it or say anything about it then. In fact, I think she has some interactions with the president uh, quite a few times after that or work with the president. But this is the entirety of the encounter. Now, from what I can tell, President Trump has even denied kissing her on the cheek. And apparently there were witnesses there. So I don't know, you know, uh, if he did it or not. But so what? I mean, even if the president did exactly what this woman claims that he did, kissed her on the cheek. Now, I don't know how she could say that it was his, his intention to kiss her on the lips. And if he was going to kiss her on the lips, I'm sure it was just going to be a peck. I mean, he was not going to lay one on her, you know, you know, like, uh, you know, that the, uh, the, the soldier after World War II in Times Square, he wasn't going to, you know, bend her over and, you know, big, give her this big kiss. I'm sure it was going to be a quick peck and that would have been it. And it would have been nothing but a, a gesture of appreciation. Now, I know people say, well, why didn't he just offer her to shake her hand? I mean, that's something that you do with a guy or pat him on the back, a handshake. I mean, a guy kissing a girl is no big deal. That is culture. I mean, you go anywhere, go to Europe. I mean, people are kissing each other on the cheek. And some countries, they, you kiss on both cheeks. Some countries, you kiss three times. I mean, kiss, there are guys kissing guys. But in American culture, I mean, you don't have that. Most men are not going to kiss another man on the cheek. But they're going to kiss a woman on the cheek. Uh, and especially, you know, an older school guy like Donald Trump. I mean, he probably thought it was a nice thing to do if he even did it, right? Of course, he's denying it. But so what? How is this a crime? How is this a sexual assault? I mean, you read this. It's like this woman has been traumatized ever since. Traumatized by what? A peck on the cheek? I mean, what, does she have visions? She can't sleep? She, she tries to close her eyes and just, she just sees Donald Trump's lips? You know, these gigantic lips coming at her and she's all freaked out about it? I mean, she's never been kissed on the cheek by a guy? I mean, she's an adult woman? I mean, and it's not like this woman is some, you know, she's really hot or anything. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure the president didn't feel like kissing her because he was sexually attracted to her. I mean, the president's had some pretty nice looking women, right? I mean, and he's got a, an absolutely gorgeous wife. I mean, he's not, I'm sure he wasn't attracted to this woman at all. I mean, if he kissed her at all, it was just to show his appreciation for the fact that she had just told him how hard she was working uh, to help him elect. And he's, oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate the good work that you've done. And he gives her a kiss. But now all of a sudden, this is a federal lawsuit. This is the kind of stuff that happens all the time. It's, see, it's not just Donald Trump that's dealing with this. And of course, this is probably, hey, let's just make 
Donald Trump look bad, right? Because all you read this um, uh, complaint and he's all the references to the Billy uh, Bush, uh, uh, you know, stuff about the grabbing him by the pee and I just give me a, I just like to come up and kiss him. I'm a celebrity. So it talks about how he has a pattern of abusing women and sexually assaulting women and how he's admitted. I mean, it's all a bunch of nonsense. They've got nothing. But again, they're trying to put this out there uh, to try to make the president look bad with this bogus uh, lawsuit. But this kind of stuff goes on all the time. I mean, believe me, there are plenty of small employers who have to deal with this nonsense, uh, this sexual harassment, this uh, sexual assault. Uh, This is what is driving up the cost of litigation for American businesses. If this congressman is concerned about how discrimination is hurting our economy. What is hurting our economy is the anti-discrimination laws that are causing all of these frivolous lawsuits and not just discrimination, but all this stuff about uh, sexual assault or creating a, a, a hostile work environment. I mean, empowering women to file these types of frivolous lawsuits is one of the reasons that Employers may not want to employ them or employ fewer of them to try to mitigate the the number of lawsuits that they have to defend or the number of lawyers they have to pay off. I mean, a lot of times uh, these lawyers just shake you down. I mean, rather than paying the cost of defending yourself in a frivolous lawsuit, you pay them off. In fact, maybe if Donald Trump wasn't the president, maybe if this lawsuit was just filed, you know, through the Trump organization, maybe maybe he would pay off the lawyer. Maybe he would realize, hey, let me throw her five, 10, 20 grand because it'd be cheaper than actually defending myself in this nonsensical suit. But because he's the president of the United States, you know, it's a much more high profile. And so I think there's a lot of politics behind it. And so he probably just can't pay it off. But I can't imagine a sitting president actually having to take time off to defend himself against this kind of nonsense. I mean, at the minimum, the the whole proceeding should be stayed until he's no longer in office. Uh, but But it would be better to see the whole thing thrown out because it's not a case. I mean, it is not a crime to kiss somebody on the cheek. You know, even if they don't give you permission first, you don't have to ask somebody's permission. And you know what? If the, if somebody kisses you on the cheek and you don't like it, you know what you say? Excuse me, uh, Mr. Trump, just don't kiss me. I don't like to be kissed. I would appreciate it if you don't kiss me again. I understand the gesture, but just in the future, just, you know, give me a handshake because that's what I prefer. That's all she had to do. And in fact, she said she turned her head. If she really wanted to prevent the kiss, she could have extended her arms. She could have stopped him. It's not like he forcibly grabbed her and kissed her. I'm sure if she really didn't want to be kissed on any part of her head, she could have put her arms out and stopped the president. If she was so sure that he was going to kiss her on the lips, that she had that big of an advance warning that she was able to turn her head, she could have extended her arms and, and prevented the kiss from even happening. But she did not do that. She allowed it to happen. And it's not like Trump would have done something to her if she would have done that. He wasn't going to, you know, forcibly kiss her in front of a bunch of witnesses. I mean, he would have been fine if she would have said, hey, Donald, 
you know, hey, I prefer it, thanks, but I, I don't want to get, I don't want to be kissed by guys. This is all a bunch of BS, but only in America, only in a country with a court system as ridiculous as the one we have that is completely run by the trial lawyers who have the Democratic Party in their hip pocket, and everybody is afraid to pass any kind of, you know, tort reform or any kind of legal reform that would prohibit this type of vindictive, um, legal shakedowns that go on routinely in the United States. And the government has made it worse uh, with all these anti-discrimination laws. That's what Congress should be concerned about. That's where the investigation should be. It's got no business. They got no business talking about that uh, to the Federal Reserve because they got nothing to do with that. The Federal Reserve creates a lot of problems. And I'm going to put a lot of problems on their doorstep. But this ain't one of them. These legal problems and these discrimination problems, that's all Congress. Right? That's on them, and they've got to take a good look in the mirror if they want to understand the source of those problems.